time to screw the norms. To fit in, we often hide what's on our minds, who we really are, or who we want to be, or even what we want to do. But now you're having the right conversations. Here, we'll talk about sex, relationships, and mental health, and how they interact with each other and so many other aspects of life. Shame can't survive when we're honest and curious with each other and ourselves. It's time for your mind to scream less and for you to screw more. I'm Rachel Wright, a non-monogamous queer psychotherapist and your host. You've probably figured this out by yourself by now, but if you own a vulva, did you know that there is a three in five chance that having penetrative sex doesn't result in an orgasm? Enter Zumio. (laughs) Zumio is a -a one-of-a-kind toy with the sole purpose of providing a unique, stimulating experience. And guess what? It doesn't even vibrate. It rotates with a concentrated pinpoint energy that allows you to control how and where you use it. There are four different models specifically designed for your personal intensity preferences. And Zumio is great for vulva mapping and exploring the rest of your body, whether that is solo or with a partner. Check out www.myzumio.com slash Rachel. That's R-A-C-H-E-L for a special discount for the Right Conversations listeners and take control of your orgasms today. Hello, friends. I am absolutely thrilled to share this conversation with you. Today, we are having a conversation about owning pleasure and sexuality after childhood sexual abuse. And this conversation is very special for a handful of different reasons. And at the beginning of the interview with Casey, Casey Crosley is our guest today. Uh, you'll hear me reference that I'll put in the show notes or, or something. And I decided that instead of just writing it out, I wanted to record this intro to just give you context for how special this interview is. Um, so first and foremost, Casey is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. So we get to hear really personal um, experience around what this was like in healing and becoming an adult that wanted to have a healthy relationship with sex. So that's the first thing. The second thing is Casey, and I have full permission to share this. Casey was my client a long time ago. Um, Casey was one of my very first clients, in fact, when I started as an intern in private practice. So I was about halfway through my hours uh, towards licensure at the time in in the state of California, which is where I got licensed. uh, You have to do 3,000 hours to then be able to sit and take the test to become licensed. And uh, I was about halfway through those when I started working in a private practice setting. And Casey was one of my very first clients that came into that private practice. We worked together for quite some time. And she came to me and said, hey, I want to become a therapist. And I immediately was like, you would be an incredible therapist. I've had a handful of clients over the years where I'm like, 
you need to be a therapist. And of course, I don't say you need to do this because that's not my job. Um, but when those folks happen to come to that conclusion and, and bring it to me, I have the pleasure of encouraging it and, and being of support in a different capacity. So Casey and I made a mindful decision to terminate our relationship as therapist and client, wait the appropriate um, amount of time, legally and ethically speaking. And after that time, it's up to the client. This is, again, according to California law. Um, it's up to the client if they want to reconnect with their past therapist in a new, different capacity, which Casey did. And the third reason, which is why... The third reason why this is so special is Casey is now on my clinical team for shame-free therapy. She is, I think, about halfway done with her hours, basically in a similar spot where I was when I started seeing her, which feels incredibly full circle and gives me goosebumps all over. Um, so this conversation is with an old client of mine who has now become a therapist in the organization that I founded and run and is also a personal survivor of this topic. So this is a very layered and important and beautiful conversation. And I wanted to name all of those things before listening. Uh, you can find info on Casey in the show notes. Additionally, there is always a link uh, in the bio of my Instagram and on my website, to apply to work with folks, clinicians, or specialized coaches. And Casey is one of those clinicians. So if you resonate with something that Casey says and you think, oh man, I would love to work with her, you can. I just fill out the form and put her name in there. So anyway, without any further ado, here is a conversation about owning pleasure and sexuality after childhood sexual abuse with the one and only, the talented, the gifted, the beautiful, empathetic, incredible therapist human, Casey Crossley. So today we are having a conversation about owning pleasure and sexuality after childhood sexual abuse. And I could not be more honored and thrilled to have Miss Casey Crossley with me today. How are you, my dear? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me here. How are you doing? Oh, I, you know, one day at a time, one day at a time. I am beyond thrilled to have you here for so many different reasons, which I will probably talk about outside of this episode of the notes or something. Um, but I want to dive in for everybody. And I know that this topic isn't the lightest. Uh, it's certainly not um, a fun thing to perhaps talk about, you know, if you're looking at this episode next to like a conversation about sloppy blowjobs, it may <laughs> feel a little different when you see the titles. Um, and this is a really, really important conversation as, I mean, I don't have to tell you that Casey, but for, for everybody listening. Um, so let's just start with why this topic is important to you before we get into it. Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And, you know, I had to walk through that door both alone and, and through therapy to regain a sense of control or ownership over my own pleasure. It was something that, you know, was taken away from survivors at such a young age and were given um, the script that interrupts healthy sexual development. 
And it's such an important part of life. It's such an important part of finding joy, um, understanding your sexuality and, and how to move forward if that's something that you want. Um, so yeah, really important to me for personal reasons and also just wanting the, a healthier world and, and giving people that opportunity. Ugh. So what is something that you see as a therapist pop up around this topic? I see it a lot both in individual therapy and in couples therapy. And um, I see it as a barrier in a lot of ways to connection and getting needs met in relationship. And I also see it in individual therapy in the sense that um, it causes a lot of issues in adulthood. Um, it can lead to risky behavior and not really knowing, you know, what risky behavior looks like. It can look like um, developing unhealthy sexual scripts that lead to revictimization. Um, and so those are two uh, topics that really pop up a lot in therapy. Will you explain for anyone listening what risky behavior is? Because I think people yeah. hear it and they're like, risky, like, what, what is risky? And it's one of those yeah. clinical terms that like you and I can, I, I know what you're talking about, but it's that shared meaning thing where not everybody Absolutely. knows what it means. Absolutely. Well, let me preface this, Rachel, by saying that uh, there is no shame in having sex with multiple partners. There's no shame in indulging in any kind of sexual behavior that feels good to you. The problem that we see and, and how re-victimization really um, occurs is when we hold on to these unhealthy sexual scripts um, that become the way that we operate in sexual spaces that um, compound or reiterate those unhealthy scripts um, and lead to situations where we might not feel good in sex. Maybe it might leave us more open to um, unwanted sex or, or rape. It might lead us to um, engaging in acts of sex that don't feel really good and mm -hmm. don't feel helpful or re-trigger us and can um, lead to more risky behavior like self-harm or suicide. Thank you for naming that. Okay, so let's start. I want to like rewind the tape. For anybody listening, what do you define as childhood sexual abuse? What falls under this umbrella? Yeah, it's a great question. I really think that childhood sexual abuse is abuse that happens um, before we're developing, developmentally able to really understand what sex is, to give informed consent. Um, it, it, kind of falls under what we as society consider taboo um, or harmful to development. So if someone is thinking to themselves, I wonder if that thing that happened to me is childhood sexual abuse, what would you say to that? I would say, did you consent to it? Were you able to understand it, what it was? Um, sexual abuse doesn't just mean I was touched or made to touch another. It can be, you know, um, exposure to pornography before you're really able to understand what that is. It can be, um, you know, being in the same room as someone who's doing something sexual to themselves. Um, it can even just be overhearing sexual things that are inappropriate for a young person to understand or comprehend. Okay. So almost it, it, 
and I've experienced this with some clients and I'm curious if, if you have too, if you're asking yourself the question, was this thing that I witnessed or was this thing that happened to me or that I was made to do sexual abuse? More often than not, the answer is if you're asking yourself the question, then yes. yes. Absolutely. Yes, that's exactly it. So, okay. So let's say someone is listening to this and they're like, oh, shit. Okay. Let me take a, take a breath, process that. What do you think is someone's first step? And of course, we're talking generally, this is not one size fits all for anybody. If someone can identify, okay, there was sexual abuse in my childhood. What do you recommend as the first step that people take towards this reowning their sexuality and pleasure as an adult? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to preface this by saying that it's really highly advisable that you do this in therapy just because how triggering this can be. Um, but if that's not available to you, studies kind of show that there's three questions that are really important to understand, process, and move through um, for, for, for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Um, the first question is, what happened? what what was it what occurred mm. the second question is kind of a, a tricky one so i want to explain it a little more but why did it happen and that doesn't mean that we have to really understand the motives of the person who perpetrated you know sexual abuse um but rather who's to blame mm. because when we experience a trauma like this in childhood we really have two choices we can accept that these adults, these trusted adults in our lives are incapable of keeping us safe, or we can choose to believe that we're bad and that we're the ones to blame and that there's something wrong with us. Um, And it's really important that we can learn to accept that we were never, ever, 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 ever the reason for the sexual abuse. We were never to blame. We were never, um, we never asked for it. We never, you know, no matter what we did, we never wanted it. Um, and we were never the reason for it. So that's so important because so often we really absorb that narrative that we must have done something to ask for this. Um, the last question is what did it do to my sexuality? How did it change me? What scripts did it give me? What, or stories, we can think of scripts as like stories that we tell ourselves about our sexuality. Um, and in that kind of discovering what, what are my yucks and yums? What are my triggers? What doesn't feel good? What does feel good? Um, so answering these questions would be really, really important um, in, or exploring them in one way or another. Um, and then I, as I kind of mentioned in that last question, you know, learning to discover self, safe self-touch, like what feels good to me, what doesn't feel good to me. Um, and that can be done whether you're partnered or not. So you yeah. don't have to be in relationship to start this process, or you don't have to be alone either to start this process of sexual self-discovery. That's Thank you so much for those tactical things. And I agree with you that in an ideal situation, this is something that's done with a therapist or someone at least trained in sexual trauma. Um, I'm curious in your experience, Casey, 
why do you think, and again, this is like a personal opinion question. This is not an academic study question. Why do you think it's so common that people put it on themselves? Um, I think that because it's still such a secret, there's Mm -hmm. so many parts of society that really tell us, don't talk about this, don't look at this. We get this kind of idea that we're supposed to be quiet about it and there's shame around it. It's supposed to be something that we don't share with other people. And again, I think that that trauma narrative of it, it's really scary for a child to say adults can't take care of me. Mm-hmm. It's really scary to admit that um, the people that we trust wholly for all of our needs aren't going to keep us safe, aren't able to meet our needs. And it's much easier to say, it must be something wrong with me. Mm. If only I could have been different, if only I would have done something different, then it wouldn't have happened. And we carry that with us and it becomes um, a way that we carry that like victimization uh, and and ways that we, again, expose ourselves to being re-victimized because when we, it's almost like our abusers put a, um, a piece of paper on our back that says, kick me, and we carry that. And other people who are abusers, they see that. Um, so working through this and redefining our sexuality is one way that we can go back in time and take care of our child self in the ways that we were never cared for. Um, and also it, it's a way that we protect ourselves in the here and now. It sounds like almost if I were to zoom out and summarize what you're saying, it's like once we have felt so out of control, we're looking for a semblance of control. And Mm -hmm. with the understanding that the only thing we can control is ourselves, it feels safer, even though it's so painful to put the blame on self versus everyone around me is untrustworthy because that makes the world a ter- an even more terrifying place to, to exist in. Yeah. And you can see um, that kind of narrative show up in behaviors and survivors of childhood sexual abuse in that, you know, sometimes you'll choose to have multiple partners in an effort to regain control over it because there's this, you know, sidebar kind of narrative of, um, you can't have all of me. And if I keep, mm. I can keep a piece of me safe by never being fully vulnerable in the ways that I was made to be vulnerable as a child. Oh, okay. So you're a brilliant therapist. I, I know that firsthand. Um, I want to pivot and ask you a couple personal questions if that's okay. I want to quickly interrupt this episode to talk about my latest project with Best Self Co. If you don't already know, Best Self Co. is a brand with a range of simple yet meaningful tools that help people achieve their goals, be more productive, and create positive change in their life. I've had the pleasure of working with Best Self Co. on a few projects, the latest being their brand new Intimacy After Dark deck. This 150 card conversation deck is a tool for talking about and exploring sex to bring more connected intimacy into your life. The deck was designed with all relationship structures in mind and includes a conversation framework adapted and approved by me that guides you through consensual and comfortable conversations about sex. 
Best Self was so kind to provide a code to my listeners so that you can get your hands all over the Intimacy After Dark deck before it's gone. Use the code Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, during checkout at bestself.co and get 30% off the new Intimacy After Dark deck. That's bestself.co and code Rachel for 30% off the new After Dark deck. I want to thank Best Self Co. for being one of today's podcast sponsors. Now, back to our conversation. What was your journey like in reclaiming your sexuality and your pleasure? And what are some things that stood out to you as being incredibly hard or easier than you thought? Just, I would love to bring everyone in. I I think so many people see therapists and they're like, oh, that person has everything figured out and their mental health is perfect and all their relationships are great. And you and I both (laughs) know that that's like a crock of horse crap. But (laughs) I, I, so I think that hearing, you know, that you not only do this work with other people so beautifully, you've also gone through this journey for you. And, and I want to bring people into that. Absolutely. Um, you know, for me, I wasn't supported by my family. So I really internal internalized that narrative that I must be bad. Um, and it took me a long time, years of therapy to really break down that narrative and that knee jerk response. Um, and open myself back up to, to what is scary, but also really good. Um, for me, as far as like my sexuality, it, I, it really, I hid my queerness in a lot of ways because Mm. for me it was wrapped up in that. Um, and I also, you know, I had really risky sexual behavior. Um, there was this, impulse to have some sort of control and if I'm being completely honest um, ways that I wanted to hurt people who reminded me of my abusers in the same way that I was hurt so I didn't have a lot of care for how my sexual behaviors were hurting others I you know later on and had to really understand that sex wasn't an act that I did for others. It's something that gets to be for me and I get to have pleasure and say in what um, sex looks like and regaining control over sexuality and, and what happens during sex is such a big part of recovery for so many people and it was for me. Um, so little decisions like whether or not the lights were on or off, um, what clothes I kept on or off, what I would or wouldn't do. And just as a side note, for me in my journey, like the kink world was so important because consent is such a big part of it. And getting yeah. to have those, that modeled conversation of, of like even writing it down, like what will we and won't we do felt so safe. And it created the structure that I didn't get in childhood. You know, I didn't know when the abuse was going to happen and when. And now I get to decide that. And that felt really, really safe. Um, Thank you for bringing up kink stuff because I, there's such a, uh, there's so much safety in kink and there's going to be a podcast episode all about kink. And I think often people who don't know about kink think that it's like this 
disorganized, sex crazed, like thing that is so ambiguous and it's so the opposite. It is like very formulaic and, and discussed and structured and consent forward. And I really, really appreciate you naming that. Yeah. And I think the other part of kink that felt really healing for me in the process was aftercare something mm. that I never got as a child. Will you describe like, that for people? Yeah, aftercare. Oh, it's like one of my favorite things. You know, it's <laughs> been two people, you know, who are engaging in a sexual act, um, check in and care for one another, you know, and that can be defined in that, you know, consent form that you sign of like, what will I need? Here's what I know about my body. So if I'm behaving this way, this is the kind of thing that I need. I need to be cuddled. I need a drink of water, which stimulates your amygdala, right? And can help you kind of shake free of those um, triggering moments. And, uh, you know, or I, I want to be held. I want, I want you to ask me if I'm okay. I want you to co-regulate with some box breathing for me. So aftercare is just really what it sounds like. It's the way we take care of each other after a sexual act, which again, you know, most of abuse victims they don't they don't get that opportunity to be cared for you're kind of left with the confusing um and uncomfortable feelings that happen with sex oh so beautiful okay so as we wrap up this chat what do you want to say to anyone listening who has either already acknowledged or is just now even in this conversation realizing and acknowledging that they had sexual abuse in their childhood. If you could just like loudspeaker into their hearts and ears and brains. I think I would want, I think I would want to say three things. I would want to say it was never, ever, ever your fault. It was never, ever your fault. I would want to say that any sort of physiological um, responses you had during sexual abuse was not consent in any way. Right? It's our bodies responding to sexual stimulus. It, enjoying parts of it does not mean that in any way you consented to it, which I think is something that's not talked about enough. Yeah. And I would say that it's extremely important if you are a partnered person healing from this, that you have a partner who understands and who advocates for your well-being and is patient and loving and understanding throughout this process because we are harmed in relationships and through relationships we heal. So that's a really important aspect. Oh, that quote, Casey. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you would feel icky about this conversation ending without you mentioning? Yeah, I would say that the one thing that I would want folks to know that we didn't really talk about is that neurons that, that fire together wire together. So if you find that when you engage in, in a sexual act that you're having feelings of disgust, of fear, um, of apprehension in any way, that that's not... Um, that's, that's not something that uh, means that you can't have sexual pleasure, but rather that our, our neurological pathways were wired in such a way that we are bound to have that kind of knee-jerk response 
And trauma is not destiny. The mind is incredibly malleable. Neurological pathways can be rewired. You can have a healthy and wonderful and enjoyable sexual experience if you want one. It's out there and waiting for you. Thank you, Casey. And I will drop Casey's Instagram info if you want to work with Casey in a one-on-one capacity. She is a brilliant clinician and I am just, thank you so much for taking time to, to come talk so openly, not just about the, the clinical pieces, but to share your own journey too. It's, I know how grateful I am and I know that there are going to be many, many, many people very, very grateful. So thank you on behalf of everyone listening for your energy, your expertise and, and your vulnerability. Thank you so much for creating this space and for having me. I'm honored to be here. Always. That's all for today, you sexy folks. What questions came to mind as you were listening? Continue the conversation with me over on Instagram at the right underscore Rachel. And don't forget, please leave a rating and a review so that we can continue erasing shame and stigma together. 